from Great Britain via Israel to the world. To the world. To the world. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. What are your ambitions? Are they like every young politician's ambition? To sit on the throne, to be the top man? That's a lofty ambition if you have it. Do you have it, sir? No. You don't? No, I don't want to be prime minister. I think in order to be prime minister, it's something you need to want more than anything else. Want it really bad. I was the deputy ambassador in Cairo. It was uh, three whole years of being a diplomat, a representative of what was perceived as the forces and the epitome of all evil. (laughs) And for three years, I lived in a kind of surreal environment in which um, I was trying as hard as I could to really bring through the message that I was not a Mossad agent, but a real diplomat. And the, the harder I tried, the less I think they believed me. Our young people, our quest to live in a Jewish and democratic country, which is a miracle to happen in our generation, gives me all the hope that I need and our democracy is going to survive. Johnny Gould's Jewish state stays in Israel for this episode, heading for the Knesset in Jerusalem and a couple of nights out in Tel Aviv fresh from an eye-opening visit to the Israel-Gaza border. Scroll back one episode as I go through both the Israeli and Palestinian buffer zones of the Erez Crossing, the main border between Israel and Gaza, through which goods and people are exchanged, despite the daily threat of missile attack. And then, given full clearance by the IDF, I enter a top-secret location to observe the Iron Dome Battery, charged with defending Sterot from indiscriminate enemy rocket fire. It had been in use just hours before, as Hamas terrorists embedded in the populace of Gaza lobbed another five rockets towards Israel, which those very Iron Dome batteries had blasted out of the sky. People in Sderot are waking up every night during those operations. Kids get traumatized because they have to wake up every night and run to shelters and hide and skip, not go to school, not skip. Schools are closed. They're not able to get their proper education because there's a terrorist organization within sight that is just shooting at them. Israel's biggest incursion into Janine for decades was being conducted at the same time. So now let's talk to politicians and a regional expert for a snapshot on regional and domestic issues. The white heat of judicial reform has seemingly pushed the general public's concerns about the Palestinians into the shadows. And that's even happening here in the UK. Once upon a time, if you went to a Jewish or Israeli event in London, you'd walk through half a dozen gloom pups of the Corbyn Armageddon column. And well, now you get a quorum of Israeli flag wavers instead, determined to speak up for their form of democracy. Knesset's brutalist architecture with its varnished late 60s staircases and a 
functionality from a public building near you is quite endearing. Lots of grandiose displays of art, pictures, organograms in the shape of menorahs. And the yellowy lit windowless corridors are punctuated by a town square of sorts. Democracy in action, rival TV networks in front of their gaudy lights competing with each other with bluster. And then into a committee room we swept of some presence despite its practicality. The Likud government meeting room. More or less the Israeli ruling class since Menachem Begin swept to power so dramatically in 1977 and Likud's leaders stare at you across the room from black and white pictures as my guest takes his seat where Bibi sits and I sit next to him. I met Hanoch Dov Milvitsky, MK, on trying to bring Israelis back together. To Tel Aviv with the Iranian expert, Meir Javandanfa, who supports the JCPOA, what many in Israel and around the world regard as appeasing the Iranian regime, allowing them space and time to create a nuclear weapon. So why does he support it? And he took part in the Iranian revolution. Yes, really. He had to leave his home because of it. But first, let's hear the story of Ruth Wasserman Lander. A former member of Knesset, itching to get back and with seemingly endless ambition. Ruth served as advisor to Shimon Peres and deputy ambassador at the Israeli embassy in Cairo. Her parents arrived from Soviet Lithuania with nothing. Raised in a Russian-speaking home, the Soviets took her mum's wedding ring off her. Their life in Ashdod, to start with, before moving to South Africa, she then decided to make Aliyah and return to Israel. And she brought her kids up in Lud, the oldest city in Israel. It's a mixed Arab and Israeli city. And it's where St. George is buried. She lives in a Moshav in the north now. And on the corner of Malche Yisrael and Frischman here in Tel Aviv. It couldn't be more atmospheric. Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you. It's an honor for me to be with you. Now, you organized the Abraham Accords Caucus in the Knesset. But the Abraham Accords has literally been a game changer for the state of Israel. It was the name that they could not utter in the Arab world. What a breakthrough it has been. An absolute game changer for years we couldn't go to Arab countries. Uh, it was unbelievable that for the first time, I personally flew over Saudi Arabia, which allowed Israeli planes to fly inside their airspace and land in the UAE. And they would say the word Israel out aloud on Emirati soil. It was unbelievable, but more so and concretely, the actual potential technologically, economically, in terms of R&D, everything that one can speak of, including strategy and security, it has opened a whole entire new world. Now, I have been to the United Arab Emirates as a diaspora Jew because the world has opened to me as well. The first observation I have to say about the UAE is it's as rich as Croesus. There is so much opportunity there for the state of Israel and indeed for the world. And the idea that they are opening up really is a fact. It is a warm peace. 
And you know that yourself, having been someone who, as a young Jewish Israeli, spent three years in Cairo. I was the deputy ambassador in Cairo. It was uh, three whole years of being a diplomat, a representative of what was perceived as the forces and the epitome of all evil. <laughs> and for three years, I lived in a kind of surreal environment in which... Um, I was trying as hard as I could to really bring through the message that I was not a Mossad agent, but a real diplomat. And the, the harder I tried, the less I think they believed me. But what was amazing for me was the opportunity, the eye-opening opportunity, first and foremost, to learn Arabic. And second of all, to understand and uh, really uh, comprehend in a deep way the way of thinking, the the sentiments, the fears, the, I would say, the stereotypes that people in Egypt live with concerning Israelis and, of course, vice versa. But in general, to be able to really feel and touch and smell uh, firsthand an Arab country as an Israeli. Now, you are part of an Israeli generation that has an amazing story your parents are Russian. They came over here absolutely potless, no money whatsoever. And you started life in the most humble of surroundings in Ashdod. And it just goes to show, doesn't it, how flat Israeli society is, that you can progress this far in this country as a woman as well. First of all, thank you for the compliment. My parents indeed came from Lithuania, former USSR in uh, the early 70s with really nothing at all. Um, I was born in Israel several years later and um, I, uh, I worked very, very hard in the Israeli society uh, despite very many strange things that are being said about it in all different parts of the world really allows uh, a kind of... Um, multiculturalism, a pluralism, and it, one can see that in Parliament, the Arab MKs in Parliament, the different kinds of Jews with different backgrounds in Parliament, but not only in Parliament. Um, there is a lot of work still to be done for women, for equality in general, but a long way has been achieved in the 75 years that Israel has been in existence. And for me personally, I, I do feel that I have made uh, a very long way, a very meaningful journey of living and working, serving former President Shimon Peres as his advisor, uh, also studying in this country, uh, serving the country basically throughout my professional life, until recently also within the Knesset, within the parliament, and I continue to do so. I work with a lot of people and Jewish communities abroad. I uh, speak, I write. I feel that it's, um, it's a true calling to try and uh, put the message across that um, it is a little bit more complex than international media or media in general likes to make it. Um, and again, we're in a very complex arena. We're in a very complex neighborhood. Um, and I feel privileged to be able to um, better understand and to make people better understand what are the opportunities and, of course, the challenges in this neighborhood. Now, we've talked about your Lithuanian background. We've talked about life in Cairo for a short while. We've talked about life in Ashdod when uh, 
your family arrived here, first of all. You also spent time growing up raising children in one of the most multi-ethnic cities of them all, Israel's oldest city and one of the world's oldest civilizations near the airport. It's Lud. Absolutely. It's uh, actually the oldest city in Israel. Jericho is older, but Jericho is not in Israel. Uh, so apart from many people actually think that Jerusalem and Jaffa are older, but it, they are not. So it is, in fact, the oldest city. And St. George, who slayed the dragon, St. George, the patron St. George, is actually buried in the city of Lod in one of the most beautiful uh, churches, uh, Orthodox churches uh, in the country. And many pilgrims come uh, annually to touch, to pray, to light a candle in this church. And yes, I felt that it was uh, the right thing to do to live in an Arab Jewish city. I believe, I make my life mission uh, to work for cohesion, for coexistence among different types of Jews, among uh, religious and secular, and also among Jews and Arabs. I feel that at the end of the day, and this is my life motto, it's not just words for me, we are all the children of the same God. And that is what drives me. If there are terrorists who, like today, where we are sitting, not far from here, bombarded and uh, uh, try to run over with a car and knife and they injured eight people. Okay, so no cohesion and no cooperation there. But if the hand is stretched out in the want of peace, yes, I am willing and I believe the vast majority of Israelis are willing and wanting and longing for it. But we also need to be very strong in the face of potential enemies um, unfortunately, we are surrounded. Now, the electoral system put a temporary end to your tenure in the Knesset. But let me ask you, you're going to be back, aren't you? You are going to be back in the hotbed of politics. You wanted to be a politician right up there in Jerusalem. It's my dream to be a member of parliament again. And it's my dream to be a minister again. And please, God, I'll get there. Can you tell me about your personal politics as well? I mean, you're against the Likud. Can you just give me a view on the judicial reform? It's not all bad, is it? So I'm not against the Likud. My politics are very central, and I belong to the party called Blue and White, headed by former Minister of Defense Benny Gantz. There needs to be some judicial reform. There hasn't been a judicial reform for very many years. But there's uh, a way in which to do some of the reform, not in a very speedy way and not to take out all the checks and balances over the legislative and the executive arm. In other words, in the Israeli system, we have the judicial arm, which has become relatively strong, but there is a reason for that. We have no constitution and we have no upper chamber. So there are no other checks and balances to the concentration of power in the executive and the legislative. And that's why a quick change of taking away that kind of check and balance by lowering the uh, impact of the judiciary 
in my humble opinion, is the wrong way to go about it. That's why I often join the demonstrators. I make speeches in very different cities almost every weekend to demonstrators. But my politics are midway. They are inclusive. They are accepting. I believe in cohesion, in inclusion. And I believe that the strength of Israel is in its unity. And I also believe that this unity also has to do with the Jewish people in general, the Jewish peoplehood, wherever they may be, they are part and parcel of this peoplehood. And I believe that people who are also of faith and believe in the importance of Israel as um, a strong democratic beacon of light in this region will also share the sentiment. Kol HaKavod. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel, um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from a journalist, and often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. KO-FI.com slash Johnny Gould. Ruth Wasserman Land, thank you very much for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish thank State. You. Thank you. It's an honor for me. So let's head to the Knesset now. Hanoch Dov Milvitsky. He's a parliamentary rookie, not been there very long, but with a career in local politics and as a lawyer. He set up the Aroma Coffee chain in New York, where he experienced firsthand anti-Zionist, pro-Palestinian protests outside his coffee shops. Most Israelis, he says, haven't experienced that visceral anti-Zionist protesting like we do all the time in the West. He's also co-chair of the Knesset's Israel-UK Interparliamentary Friendship Group. Over to you, Hanoch. Hanoch Dov Milvitsky, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Hi. Hi. Great to be here. It's lovely to be with you here mm-hmm. in the Knesset's committee room here of Likud. I really feel that we're 
in ground central as regards the uh, <laughs> the power base of Israeli politics at the moment. But you're quite new. I am to Likud and to the world of Knesset because you have quite an interesting uh, career background before you entered into the world of politics. Yeah, I was a lawyer uh, for uh, I think twenty two, twenty three years. Um, I also uh, had some business entrepreneurship. Uh, I opened uh, an Israeli espresso bar chain in New York. I uh, was a council member in this, my city in Petah Tikva for nine years. I was deputy mayor there. Uh, I held uh, some um, um, uh, roles uh, in uh, the Likud party in the uh, committee of uh, selecting judges. I was uh, the uh, chief aide of the uh, chairman of the Ministry of Finance when Israel Katz was the Ministry of Finance. And I also did a lot of um, what we call uh, planning, planning, planning yeah. zoning. Uh, that was my major thing in law. And I was this uh, head of uh, a regional committee, basically developed a certain part of Israel. So that's my... Right. And so now you really want to make an impact uh, in government, which puts you in the box seat on judicial reform, Obviously, you are on the side of Likud, of Benjamin Netanyahu, and mm -hmm. you say that it is an essential reform. When I come to Ben Gurion Airport, I am greeted with megaphones and noise and Israeli flags and this awful, what looks like a schism between the people. The protests were going on when there was no legislation at all, when there were... Uh these talks in the president's house trying to reach a mutual understanding and bringing a joint bill uh, to the Knesset, the, these protests kept going on. They have nothing to do with any legislation. The, what's left uh, from the protests are very uh, are extremist groups that don't think that this government is legitimate. And their main goal is basically to uh, throw the government and have new elections. Until they succeed in doing that, these protests are not going away. It has nothing to do with what this government does or not uh, do. It has only to do with its being in power. As long as our government will be in power, that these protests is something we need to understand that will continue going on. Hanoch, you're a rookie. Yeah. You've, you've <laughs> only been here less than a year. What are your ambitions? Are they like every young politician's ambition? to sit on the throne, to be the top man. Likud is the natural party of um, government here since, well, since Menachem Begin in mm -hmm. the late 70s. And of course, it has a wonderful history with, uh, you know, with Jabotinsky and Begin, and of course, leading right up to the longest serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. That is, uh, that's a lofty ambition if you have it. Do you have it, sir? No. You don't? No, I don't want to be prime minister. I think in order to be prime minister, it's something you need to want more than anything else. Want it really bad. Uh, I want to uh, do some uh, changes in the internal situation of the Israeli society. I think that the social divisions and tears that we are finding out we have as a society is something we cannot neglect. It's something we need to deal with. And I want to be in a place that will help me best deal with that issue mainly. And in order to do that, you don't need to be prime minister. Sir, if you achieve that, that would be quite a legacy. We do need to bring Israel together. And for those of us in the diaspora who 
are championing Israel, who want Israel to succeed. The idea of a fissure, the idea of a split, a schism between the people is actually a point of heartbreak for people like us. I personally can't live with that. I, we have to solve these problems. I completely agree with you. Couldn't have said it better myself. Let me ask you about your relationship with uh, the Houses of Parliament. Uh, you're part of the friendship group between the Knesset and the Houses of Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I mean, of course, America is Israel's greatest friend, but I think the relationship between the United Kingdom and Israel has never been as good as this, and it has been led by a conservative government who get Israel. What is the state, do you think, of the relationship between the Houses of Parliament and the Knesset here in Israel? Well, I, I was very uh, impressed for the better to, to see the actual concern British MPs have towards Israel, their friendship towards Israel. They're, they're willing to, to help Israel even uh, through controversial matters. They want to take us to a better place even if we think differently. And that's the sign of true friendship. And I was very much... Um, excited to, to, to see that because they didn't know what to expect. And I'm sure that we have a lot of friends uh, in the United Kingdom to work with in order to make the relationship between uh, Israel and the United Kingdom a much uh, more fruitful ground uh, for both countries, I think. And you are trying to change the legislation for the Israeli Bar Association to keep it relevant mm-hmm. to the legal system in this country. Exactly. You know, we, we have the Bar Association, the Israeli Bar Association that was formed in 1961. Uh, and it basically, in order to be a lawyer in Israel to practice law, you need to be a member of the Bar. Now, the Bar gives you a license, the Bar deals with internships, and the Bar is also supposed yes. to be dealing with ethic. Uh, ethical behavior mm-hmm. and it's also support to is supposed to uh support and uh do good to the uh, lawyers as a public you know uh get things done for them it's basically a professional organization now what's happening in the past 15 to 20 years is that the bar is completely irrelevant to most lawyers in their professional life it has a lot of political issues it does have a lot of money going through its pipes, over 100 million shekels each year coming from lawyers who have to pay annual fees in order to practice law. Uh, and that is what I want to change. I want to uh, make the bar not something you have to be a member for. You have to is basically make it voluntary. If it does any good for you, then you're a member to, to it. If not, you need to pay a very small a fee to the government to uh, practice law, and you don't have to be a member uh, of a professional organization that really doesn't do anything for you. And of course, the people who are sitting, you know, at, at the faucets of the money, who are used of getting a lot of mon- uh, money each year and not doing very much for it, oppose it, and they're saying it's the end of democracy and it's because we want to do this and that. But it, eventually, if they are doing good for their lawyers, if they would be secure of their contribution to the professional life of the lawyers, then I'm not, you know, banning the bar from operation. I'm just saying you don't have to be a member to it in order to practice law. It will make the bar association work for the money they're charging lawyers. That's what's happening now.
And finally, um, it looks like the Conservative government in their, uh, let's just say, their uh, their death rattle, because let's just say that it's possible that the Labour government might come in and win the next election. And that is the passing of an anti-BDS bill, which is effectively more about councils not adopting their own foreign policy over a sovereign government. So I know you're going to give me a short answer on this. What is your view of Michael Gove's bill? Well, I'm uh, all for uh, anti-BDS legislation and pro-Israeli legislation. And I think the BDS movements, some of them, not all of them, uh, are really anti-Semitic movements. So as long as people are aware with that and acting against uh, those movements, I think it's a very good thing to add. And I'm obviously all for it. Hanoch Dov Milvitsky, thank you very much for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you, Johnny. It was a pleasure. So, what do we do with Iran? Let's ask an expert, Dr. Mayer Javandanfa, a committed Anglophile. He's grateful to Britain for giving him sanctuary after the Iranian Revolution, and he made alias soon after the millennium as a committed Zionist Jew. And he supports the JCPOA and says Israeli military experts, even the Mossad, those people in the know do too. Let's find out why. And he took part in the Iranian Revolution. He really did. And just so you know, he never quite left the English sense of humour behind him. He told us he's also a subscriber to the British comic Viz. So, I adopted my best Roger Melly, the man on the telly pose, to get the very best out of my interviewee. Dr. Meir Javedanfar, I teach Iranian diplomatic and security studies at Reichman University. Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you, John. And it turns out you're quite the Anglophile. Oh, yes. Of course, I, uh, I'm British also. In 1987, I entered Britain uh, as a Jewish asylum seeker, and I lived in England till 2004. Um, England uh, is a very important part of my being, and I'll be forever grateful to the government and the people of the United Kingdom for giving me refuge and for accepting me. Now, your background is a Persian Jew, and that means that you and your family lived in comparative peace or continuity at least, for thousands of years. Correct. And so from the second Babylonian exile, when the king of Persia released the Jews, some of them came back to Israel immediately. Some of them came to Persia, and then from there they went back to the state of Israel, and they brought some of the concepts they learned. For example, in Judaism, there was no Messiah, Mashiach until the Jews returned from Persia, because they learned from the Zoroastrians, after having lived in, that there's a concept of Moshiach, somebody's going to come back one day. So from there, we have a concept of, uh, of the Messiah. Uh, it was, um, yes, very, very proud heritage. We've had our difficult periods in, in, in Iran, when the country in the 19th century was, the, the clerics had a strong role in Iranian society, the Jews really suffered. But nevertheless, we're very proud of being Iranian Jews. And there are still Iranian Jews. 7,000 Jews in Iran. Uh, from the 1979 revolution, um, there were seven Jews who were killed, uh, executed after the revolution. And so there was a huge exodus of Iranian Jews. The population dropped from 100,000 approximately in 1979 to... 
25,000, which is when, when we left and moved to the UK. Now there are 7,000 Jews in Iran. Until 1995, it was difficult for Jews to leave Iran. After that, they could do as they wish. They could stay, they could go, they could take their wealth with them. And as long as they don't have anything to do with the regime, they're okay. As long as they don't... And that goes on today. Yes, sir. As long as they don't say anything about Israel, you know, it's a little bit like the Faulty Towers episode. Don't say anything about the war. Um, don't say anything <laughs> about Israel and, and you're fine. Don't, don't say anything uh, positive about Israel. So 7,000 Tehrani Jews... No, Isfahan also. Isfahan. Is also in Shiraz. Some. This is an approximate number. It's not an exact number. It's known as a community with roots, some wealth. They can go... And live anywhere they want, L.A., yeah. London, yes. Yerushalayim, Tel Aviv, yes, sir. tomorrow. Yes. Um, given... they, don't, they don't say to the regime, I'm going to live. Actually, no, they cannot live in, move to America anymore because Trump closed down the refugee center in, in uh, Vienna, which was processing the application of Iranian Jews and Baha'is. And it hasn't been reopened. For many years, many people, including my own family, moved from Iran to Vienna. There was a refugee center there run by Hayaz, the Hebrew International Aid Society. Well, the case of Iranian Jewish refugees was, was examined for six months and then they were passed on. That's been closed now. So the only place they can go to is Israel. And London? If the British government accepts them. Yes, of course. Of course. The relationship um, in cultural terms between Iran is more Francophone than British, isn't it? Not anymore. Has that disappeared? No, yeah, that, that's the old generation. Right. Uh, Iranians are huge, huge fans of American culture. Huge fans of American culture, um, which, is, which scares the regime because the regime believes that American ideas such as democracy, human rights, and uh, the most the scariest idea from America, women's rights, uh, could uh, encourage the people of Iran to rise up against the regime. So, uh, but America has... Tremendous uh, cultural pool in Iran. Tremendous. So how long have you lived in Israel? Um, 2004 when I made Aliyah. You made Aliyah, and that was for ideological reasons? Yes. Um, My parents were living here. England's a wonderful country, uh, but uh, as a Zionist Jew and as an Iranian, I find it much easier here. In England, if you say Iranian, they think, you know, Middle East. Here, they know Iranians. They know Iranian culture because in the Bible, because... Of the, so, as an Iranian, it's much easier here. And, of course, as a Zionist Jew, I was very angry, by the way, that, um, in, unfortunately, in intellectual circles in, in England uh, in 2004, the idea of a Jewish state in Zionism was viewed so negatively, and that used to really make me angry. And um, So, as a Zionist, it's much easier here. Now, can I talk to you about uh, perhaps the most uh, standout uh, policy that you agree with here, which you need to explain to our listeners, many of whom will need to understand this. You're a man of some hinterland and intellect. Explain to our audience here on John Eagle's Jewish State why you support the JCPOA. Um. First of all, because I think the idea that Iran would give up its, entirely its nuclear program is a non-starter. There's so much of the regime's legitimacy that's tied up to this nuclear program that the regime cannot give it up completely. You know, you could say, okay, but the Assad, the Assad regime and the Iraqi regime, they were destroyed and the nuclear program was destroyed. Well, it's because they kept it secret. The regime did not tie so much of its legitimacy to this nuclear program. So enrichment in Iran will have to continue if we want to reach a deal. And the deal allowed the enrichment to continue in Iran 
under strict supervision. Iran is the most inspected country in the world. I repeat, the most inspected country in the world. There was because of the JCPOA. When Trump walked out of the nuclear deal, that weakened our inspection. So we knew at what percentage Iran was enriching, at what time it was going to increase its enrichment, how many years. We knew it was inspected. It was Iran was the most inspected country. The Iranian nuclear program was within a framework. Okay, but, but they then, must have concealed quite a bit as well. well a lot of it's underground. Until until now, no intelligence agency in the world has said that Iran. I mean, until Trump walked out of the nuclear deal, that Iran did anything untowards and did anything to break the nuclear deal. And this includes the 500 kilograms worth of documents of C- and CDs which Mossad s- smuggled out of Iran. In which case, if the framework is the way forward to control Iran, why is Israel, whose existence relies upon the threat of a nuclear Iran, the idea that, God forbid, Israel could sustain an attack from Iran in the future, maybe not now, but in the future, why are they so against the JCPOA when, in your opinion, they should be behind it? Um, first of all, uh, according to newspaper reports, I have not met a one former head of the Mossad who is against the JCPOA. And really? these people know the Iranian nuclear program. I have not met one. Really? I have not met one. Um, look, in politics, perception is more important than reality. And why is perception more important than reality? Because perception is connected to your emotions, whereas reality is important to, uh, connected to your logic. And we all know our emotions are far stronger than our log- power of logic. And the emotions in Israel are that this is a regime that has called for destruction. This is a regime that has paid Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah to kill hundreds, if not thousands, of Israeli citizens. This is the only regime in the world that denies the Holocaust. So when you have that attached to the question of an agreement with the same regime, of course, people are going to be against. Can you give us a steer, sir, on the relative strength of the Iranian regime? It does seem to be in position despite millions of dissidents. They are a murderous cult at the top. Are they strong? Are they susceptible to revolution? Could there be the restoration of the Pahlavi dynasty? I wish. <laughs> Look, I would, have, I would have taken part in the 1979 revolution. I'm not going to lie to you. Really? Yes. Nobody, Ex- explain that. Because God, uh, Muhammad Reza Shah, may his memory be of blessing. Now we say this, we didn't because we don't know what was going to happen. He did a lot of good things in Iran, but he was a dictator. Everybody wants something better for their country. Everybody wants the country to be rich, which Iran was, but also be free. Not to ban books, not to censor the press, not to, not to uh, arrest people for having the wrong idea, not to live in a state where there's only one political party and one man. That was the Shah's mistake. The Shah had such a tight grip on Iran, even in his own military, that if senior members of his own armed forces wanted to go to a party, to the same party at night, they needed his permission. This was his mistake. And people of Iran wanted something better. Nobody has a revolution to make their lives worse. But until now, the regime turned 
turned what was a dream of the Iranian people into a nightmare, a nightmare which is far more than what was happening before. If the people of Iran would have known that this regime would do this, they would have never taken part in the revolution. The regime today is cruel. It's unpopular, it's hated, but it's cruel. These are cruel people. Judge a man by his friend, who are the friends of Ayatollah Khamenei, Bashar al-Assad and Putin. And we know what they've done to their own public. So uh, ma- the cruelty that they're willing to apply against dissidents in Iran makes me believe that unfortunately, and I hope to God I'm wrong, that this is a regime that's not for it. Because the street protests have been crushed by murder, and by then, torture, by and rape. they poisoned a thousand girls with gas around the schools in Iran. How do you explain this? This does not look like a regime that's willing to go away without killing people, without leaving bodies behind. We know in Israel that if it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. We know about rise and kill first, the unofficial uh, motto of almost every part of Israel's security and defense services. It's also from our history. It is. We waited for other countries to shoot with us and we saw what happened in the Holocaust and afterwards. Do you expect Israel to strike first against Iran, who are obviously an existential threat beyond the proxy wars that have been going on now for two and even three decades? We are already striking against the Iranian presence in Syria. So we're doing that. Is your question, are we going to launch a military strike against Iran? Are we going to go straight from the proxies and into the mainland of Iran? Well, according to foreign press, and this is not my opinion, this is what the foreign press have written, there have been numerous Mossad operations inside Iran. There have been numerous. There are many newspaper reports about pertaining to this. Will there be a massive Israeli airstrike against Iran? If the Iranian regime makes a decision to make a nuclear weapon, then I think it's very probable, yes. And to finish off this interview, sir, can we have some colour, some, something positive to say about the future of the State of Israel, sir? I think, look at the demonstrations. This, in democracy, people don't like to demonstrate because they go vote every four years. Why do I need to go and demonstrate? This is the only democratic country in the history of humankind that has had 25, 26 consecutive weeks of demonstrations democratically without a single nose broken or a window smashed. There's been some little uh, violence recently, but compare our demonstrations to what's happening in France. Compare our demonstrations to what happened in England after Brexit. People were furious after Brexit. How many times did people leave their homes and go to demonstrate in the UK against Brexit? Twice? We're doing it every week. Our young people, our quest to live in a Jewish and democratic country, which is a miracle to happen in our generation, gives me much hope. Gives me all the hope that I need that we're gonna we're gonna progress, and and we're gonna our, our democracy is gonna survive. What a positive end to this interview, sir. Thank you very much for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Tell your friends about Johnny Gould's Jewish State, Apple Podcast number ones right across the world, and a growing community of interest about Israel and the Jewish diaspora from every continent. Help me change the conversation. You can make a donation to do that. Buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. Or... 
donorbox.org slash jgpodcast. That's donorbox.org slash jgpodcast. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education. And I was part of an Elnet UK delegation. 